to learn that he is a victorious king, the king of kings, and that same theme is going to, of battling from the position of victory, as our pastor had taught in Psalm 47, we are also going to continue with that same theme. Like Psalm 46 and 47, Psalm 48 is a psalm in a continuation that celebrates the deliverance of Jerusalem from the invading army, the Assyrians. The focal point, the city of the great king, Jerusalem. What makes Jerusalem so special to God, you might ask? Well, as students of his word, we know that he inhabited it. It was there that God dwelled among his people, Israel. And God was devoted to this place because of the city of the great king he appointed for the, for the solemn service and worship of his holy, majestic name. I'm going to attempt to do my best to get through these three chapters tonight. And we're going to learn here about three calls. A call to meditate on his loving kindness, a call to trust him alone, and a call to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's go ahead and pray again. Father, we Attend our ear, Father, to what you have to say to us tonight, Lord God, as we meditate, God, on your loving kindness, Father, on your truth, God, and your promises. Speak to us in Jesus' name, we pray. So here we're going to see God's presence is our joy, our security, our salvation, and he is the defender of Israel, of Jerusalem, the holy city of the Jews, and a guide forever. Let's look at verse 1 here. It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge, as her defender. We see here that just this beginning of the chapter gives us just an introduction uh, and also the location, right? Jerusalem. Well, why is Jerusalem, again, so important? Well, we look at Psalm 132, verses 13 through 14. It says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it to be his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. He has chosen the special residence of his grace as heaven is of his glory. This place here, Jerusalem. What I like about this, for those who are prophecy students who love to study prophecy like me, it's a foreshadowing of prophecy because it's regarding a time uh, where Jerusalem is going to be attacked in the last days, where these nations are going to gather together at the end of the tribulation period, and they are going to attempt to siege and take over Israel. But we know that's not going to happen, right? Because we know what God's word says. But after the tribulation period comes the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year period of unprecedented peace, righteousness, and justice on earth. And again, what role will Jerusalem play in this millennial kingdom? It is going to be the focal point of the entire world. Because God, again, has promised to rule and reign here in the future. There's no other city in the world that is subject to more prophetic attention than Jerusalem. 
No other city is spoken more over and over in biblical prophecy than Jerusalem in his word. And because God has chosen Jerusalem, Jerusalem again will be the center of world activity and all eyes will be on this location. And prayerfully, we will all be watching from heaven, right? Because the rapture is to come first, right? And then the tribulation and millennial kingdom. But here we see this location, the holy mountain, the, is because it's the presence of God. It is holy because God is in the midst of them. It also says here, in beautiful and elevation, it is high and magnificent. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. It is joyful for the heart of a man and woman of God in which he is all. Right? Because God is the King of kings. He is high and lifted up. Here in Jerusalem we see the joy of the whole earth. God is in her palaces, verse 3. He is known as her refuge. He is known as her defender. He is our refuge. He is our defender. And we can have this confidence as we read God's word. Now here we're going to see this presence is to defend as well because the psalmist here continues verse 4. He says again, For behold, the kings assembled. There's these kings, they joined forces. Now this is in the time again of the psalmist, right? But there's a foreshadowing of it, of the prophetic side. that They passed by together. They saw it and so they marveled. They were stunned. They were troubled and they hastened away. They were terrified. Fear, verse 6, took hold of them there, and pain as a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. We see here that they came together. They marveled against the city of Zion, right? They saw just the beautifulness of it. They saw just, the, they marveled and they were stunned, but they were also filled and gripped with fear, because of this place here, because of the city of God. And they say here that it even gripped them so much as women in birth pangs. If you're a mom and you had a child, you know just the gripping of those, um, those, those the, the pains that are coming in, right, when you're about to have the contraction and over and over. These, these kings here were filled with anguish, right? And we know here, verse 7, the psalmist says, you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. Here they're going to see that there's going to be even, they're, they're going to come against, they're going to try to come against Israel, but they're not going to succeed because it's not the strength of Israel's army, but the strength of Israel's God. He is their defender. And God, here, this is interesting that this comes up right now because, you know, as we are in a time and election season where we're going to vote, it's important that we vote righteously and biblically because what does Genesis say in Genesis 12:3? as God promises to make Abraham a great nation, to bless him and to give him a great name. He says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse you and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God continues these promises as he did in Abram's day up until this day and he's going to bless those who honor and bless his name and the warning is that he's going to curse those who do, not, who do not support Israel, his dwelling place, right? The psalmist had been speaking about uh, the Lord now here, uh, of what he sees. And now we're going to see just a, 
a time of worship as well. As, as well. We see in verse 8 here, verse 8, it says, As we have heard, so we have seen. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever, Selah. And Selah means meditate. So we see verse 8 says, as we have heard, so have we seen. Now if we compare what God has done and what he has spoken, we're going to find out that as we have heard, so we have seen. And what we have seen accommodates us to believe what we have heard. I'll repeat that again. If we compare what God has done with what he has spoken in his word, we shall find that as we have heard, so we have seen. And what we have seen accommodates us to believe what we have heard. Church, as we take notice of the fulfilling of scriptures as we live through these last days, we can see that God has done great things and he is continuing to do great things. And we can come confidently and understand that he will his plan and what his word says and we can be a part of that we can be encouraged he will establish it forever Selah and he continues to meditate here on verse 9 as, we, as he says we have thought O God on your loving kindness we have thought O God on your loving kindness what is the response here as we see just these first eight verses up into verse 9 we, uh, we have thought, O oh God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. We have meditated, we have pondered, we come and just give thanks of your faithful love, of your covenant. We meditate on your unfailing love. We worship you in your temple. That's what we come here for, to church, to worship him and to give thanks of his unfailing love, right? We give what his name deserves. Verse 10 says, according to your name, O oh God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. As your name deserves, your hand is full of victory. We're gonna see here also something amazing as we continue to, uh, in verse 11, it says, let Mount Zion rejoice, let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Again, verse 10, according to your way, according to your name, O God, so is your what? Your praise, we come with praise. To the ends of the earth, your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your justice. As God's people, we are to what? We are to praise. We are to rejoice and we are to be glad at the security that he provides Jerusalem because again, we can be confident that he is going to fulfill his promises made to Israel and to us as well as we put our faith and hope in him. And again, though we are not in our heavenly Zion yet, we can face these trials and tribulations that are promised that the believer will face each and every day in this fallen world, we can come and we can partake of the powers. How? As we ponder on his word, as we meditate on his loving kindness, as we rejoice and be glad and praise him. Now we're going to see in uh, verse 12 through 13 here that uh, these, these uh, people, they, they're, they're here and they observe Zion. It says, walk about Zion and go 
all around her. Count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. I love this because it says, observe, right? Walk about, inspect or count her towers, mark well or take note of her walls. Consider her palaces. As we come through our time of devotion with God each and every day, and as we go through his word and we dissect it as students of his word, we can go in and we can walk with God each and every day. We can count and inspect just his words and compare it with just the truthfulness of it, right? As we go and look at the cities and, and these places and we look at just the, the, the history of Israel. But I like this part, it says, that you may tell it to the generation following. And praise God for those here that have carried the torch in life and passed down the word to their family members, to their children, to their friends, and breaking those generational curses of religiosity and coming and passing his word from one generation to the next. Who is the Lord? We would tell them what he has done and what they must do in response to his goodness. As we diligently observe, again, the occasions and the evidences of the church, the church's beauty, the church's strength, the church's safety from thousands of years ago till this very day, we can faithfully broadcast with the heart of an evangelist what God has done and what his word says. It's C.S. Lewis that said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were, pers- were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become ineffective in this. But verse 14, we see here just an awesome promise here. It says, for this is God our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. He is our God forever and ever. He is constant. He is unchangeable in his love towards us and for us. And he will be our guide even until death. He will show us our way as we ponder his word, as we trust in him each and every day, as we are led by his spirit even until we take our first breath in eternity. What does Romans 8, 39 say? The New Living Translation says, no power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to what? Separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. To trust and obey the Lord who is our God. He is our guide. And to have a future that is secure and blessed in those promises, to know the God of glory and to know that he is a faithful guide who cares for us in this life until he takes you into the next. What more could we want? We have his word here, right? So what must we do? We must respond 
We must tell others of what God has prepared for his people, his people within the covenant, and invite them to become citizens of the heavenly promise by faith in Christ. We see in this chapter that God is king. Zion is the city of God. This God is our God forever. And because he is on the throne, we can rejoice today and what is to come. As we look here, this is the call to meditate on his loving kindness. And now we, trans, we transition now into Psalm 49. Psalm 49 here is not only is God the king of our lives, he must also be the king of our possessions. In this psalm, we're going to see a warning that trusting in worldly possessions is futile or it's vanity. We cannot take our possessions with us when we die. I think we all know that, right? And this psalm's going to tell us that you cannot even buy forgiveness of sins with all the wealth in the world. So this psalm here, whether you're rich or you're poor, it says the psalm is for you because it has two important subjects, wealth and death. Two important subjects that we all face daily. This title for this chapter is a call to trust him alone. Now there's three stanzas here. Uh, we're going to break up this psalm here into three stanzas. Verses 1 through 13 is simply going to tell us that worldly wealth, wealth cannot redeem the soul. Wealth cannot redeem the soul. Verses 14 and 15 is going to tell us who redeems the soul. God, right? Christ. And then the third stanza, stanza verses 16 through 20, is going to deal with the sorry state of the unredeemed rich man. The unredeemed rich man. So we see here verses 1 through 4, it says, Hear, listen, pay attention. Hear this, who? All peoples. Give ear, again, pay attention. Who? All inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. So we see here that the psalmist here is saying, pay attention, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're high or you're low, the scope of this message is not only geographically, but is this socially universal. And he tells us to listen carefully as he speaks wisdom. He says, verse three, my mouth shall speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. He is saying here that I'm going to speak wisdom because of the insight that I have and I'm going to say it from a deep place in my heart. So pay attention. Now, how does this look like today, even maybe in our own lives, as uh, Christians walking in a relationship with God? It says, as we devote ourselves in a time of worship, as we sit at his feet daily, as we take time to pray in our prayer closets and worshiping him, may we not just listen, but may we pay attention, right? There's a difference, right? I, I, I always get this from my wife. She says, did you hear me? I say, yeah, I'm listening. She say, are you paying attention, right? Are you paying attention? There's a difference. Paying attention to what that still small voice the Holy Spirit has to say so that we can leave that time of devotion with understanding and revelation. 
Here the psalmist says, listen, give ear, pay attention. Who? Everyone. Verse 5, why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my hand, excuse me, at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches. So now here he's going to call out uh, who he's specifically speaking about, those who trust in wealth, those who boast in what they have, right? Now we're going to learn a couple lessons here um, about riches, about these people, these people who trust upon riches, right? Now we know that it is not a sin to be rich, right? We know that the Lord uh, provides and he has providence and he, and he um, blesses, you know, specific people, right, with riches. But it's important to know that those who depend on that portion in their life and, the ha- and they make it part of their happiness, they expect that, that wealth brings security and that they need nothing else. What follows that from that type of attitude is that they forget God himself right? They consider their riches and their profits, right? It says that they trust in their wealth. They boast it. They boast in the multitude of their riches. What did Mark tell us here in uh, chapter 10, verse 24? He said, those that depend upon money as their portion and happiness and expect that it will secure them from all evil and supply them with all good that they need nothing else, no, not even God himself. But there's a lesson here for the poor person as well. The lesson here is that the poor person is in just as much as danger as the rich man. Why? Because of an excess of desire towards wealth, right? Now we know that, you know, if we come um, from um, just a, a life where, um, Maybe we don't have as much as others, right? Um, the desire there to, to have, you know, is there, right? To have wealth, right? To, to be able to um, live maybe a different lifestyle. But when we excessively delight in it, that's when it becomes a sin. That's when it becomes dangerous. So let those who are poor and low hear and be what? Content. We content. Whether we have a little or not. In uh, 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul tells Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For the love of money. And some people, what takes place when they, you know, fulfill, or they're trying to fulfill that desire, what takes place is that they're craving money and they have wandered from the true faith and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. Verse 7 here, it says, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. So even the rich man in his wealth cannot even redeem his brother, nor give God a ransom for him. Verse 8, For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. Here we see here that, uh, again, you know, when it comes to a ransom, a ransom was paid for our lives, the precious blood 
of Jesus Christ. And no amount of money can stop the appointment that we have with the grave. We are all going to meet death. But here we see it from you know, a perspective that uh, even earthly treasure, not even all the treasure in the world can come and redeem a man's soul from death. Wealth cannot acquire salvation. It is too costly. You can't bribe death. It's too costly. It's too high. Only one thing can redeem sinful humanity so that we may live forever and not see death eternally, but eternal life, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the most adequate ransom, the blood of the Lamb. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition by your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Christ did this for us, and none of the riches of the world can pay for salvation. We see verse 10 here. It says, for he sees wise men die. The psalmist says, I see wise men die. Likewise, the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Here, even the wise die, the most wisest person dies, right? And they leave behind everything, maybe to their spouse, to their children, right? To an inheritance, right? And even to the foolish, the foolish, the senseless person dies. It says the stupid, the fool. And what happens? Your possessions are left. You cannot take it with you. You never see a hearse pulling a trailer, right? You might see people nowadays be buried with some of their possessions, right? But it's vanity. They're going to stay in the grave. It says the grave is their home. Now, verse 11 here through 12, we're going to see here that eternal home. And, and why they say there says, their inner thought, their inner thought, I love this, the depravity of man, the inner thought of where just things of, uh, I, I, I need that. The inner, it starts in the inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beast that perishes. This again is to the unregenerate. This is to the non-born again. This is to the person who has not made Christ again their Lord, but they put their trust in riches, in things, things that are going to perish, things that are going to burn. The depravity of man, the love of the world, the disease that runs through our blood by default until the grace of God comes and cures it. Job, Job 24, 20 says, the womb should forget him, the worm should feed sweetly on him, he should be remembered no more. After death, the rich and the poor will all stand equal before God. 
And the question is, what did you do with the son? What did you do with Jesus? Verses 13 through 15 here, we see this is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. Again here, death is now their shepherd. Death is their shepherd, and their soul is going to be consumed in the grave, far from all their possessions, from their houses, right? It says here, their dwelling places in verse 11, right? Their lands and these places that they named after themselves. But we're going to see one of the greatest affirmations of confidence in the book of Psalms here in verse 15 of those who died in the Lord, who are born again, who have put their trust and faith in Christ. But God, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. What's awesome here is that we see, you know, a a psalmist in the Old Testament here, right? He's looking ahead for a ransom. He's looking ahead and saying that God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. What's the language of the New Testament? That what Jesus did on the cross. So now we see the Old Testament, right? That these Old Testament saints were looking forward to the ransom paid. But as New Testament saints, we look back at the ransom paid. Our salvation is a gift, and it was paid for by God. Matthew 20, 28 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The psalmist speaks hundreds, if not thousands of years before the birth of Christ, that God is going to ransom his soul. And he's looking forward to something that had not yet happened. But he still believed. He believed. In faith, he was looking forward, right? And we too can, in faith, look forward to what's to come. His word spells it out for us through the pages. And for, he, for us, as again, New Testament saints, we have the gospel accounts, guys. We have the New Testament. We have prophecies. And outside of the Bible, we have historical philosophers, right, that wrote about the man, Christ Jesus, we can look back and have confidence of what's to come looking forward. For those who trust in the Lord, there is hope. But again, we cannot redeem ourselves. There's no money that is, not enough money that can, that can redeem 
the man from the grave if he has not been born again. And now in this last stanza, the psalmist is going to end with his original exhortation that wealth again can, you know, though it may increase your desires or wealth, you know, um, brings of some type of desire to want, right? We must remember that we must trust in him alone. Verses 16 through 20 here. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not, shall not descend after him, though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. See, when the believer dies, his spirit goes to be with the Lord. And again, we cannot take anything with us. Naked, we came into this world. Naked, we will leave. And here, we see that those who put their faith and trust in riches, it corrupts them, right? It corrupts them. But we have to consider what verse 18 says, oh, why he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers and he shall never see the light. There's gonna be a final conclusion, right? And though they boast in their wealth, what does verse 20 says? A man who is, who is in honor, yet who does not understand, is like the beast that perishes. You see the warning there? The warning says a man who trusts in his riches and this honor before men, who does not understand, is like the beast that perishes. Why does the psalmist compare man to, or, or this unregenerate man, this this, this man who is not born again, who trusts in riches and not in God to a beast? Well, if a man lacks understanding, he's no different from an animal, he's trying to say. See, a man who is not born again is living after his bodily appetites. He is in a conscious state of mind after those body appetites. I need to get those. I need wealth. I need more. It's not enough. I just need more and more, right? He's thinking about his next meal, like an animal. An animal is looking for their next meal. That's all they live for. They don't have a soul like a human being. Man without God, without the spirit of God, is making him alive like a beast, and he will perish. We must be born again. Jesus said that those who live and believe in him shall never die. So again, the psalm is about this natural man and the love of money. And you might ask, well, how should we live with money? What's the lesson behind that? Right? If I have money, and, or if the Lord so chooses to bless me with money, how do I live uh, that is honoring to him? We are living to a way that is free from the love of money and to be content with what we have and to be faithful stewards of what he has given us. I love when I, um, you know, have or ask my pastor for, for guidance um, on buying something. Just recently, my wife and I, we purchased a vehicle and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed about it, right? 
And I always remember what my pastor says when we have to purchase something for the church or he has to purchase something or I have to purchase something and I'm asking him for prayer. He says, it's not your money. When you're born again, it's not your money. It's God's money. And you will give an account. Don't let it be your treasure. You can't take it with you. But what you can do is you can send it ahead. You can invest in his eternal kingdom, in the lives around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your friends. See, again, it's not a sin to have wealth. We know that, right? But provided that we earn it honestly, we have to spend it wisely and invest faithfully in that that pleases God. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 Don't store up treasures here on earth where moth eat and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and still. Store your treasures where? In heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Power line, where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. So again, this is both a reminder and an encouragement to pursue righteousness above riches, to prioritize the spiritual over the material, and to not serve money, but let it serve us. We are just passing through, guys. This is all temporal, right? And it's all going to burn. Well, now as we transition here into the last psalm, Psalm 50, we're going to see here that this, this, this psalm describes a courtroom scene, a courtroom scene. And you might be like, hey, Albert, I'm born again. I haven't been to court in a while. Praise God, right? What a waste of time. But in this courtroom scene, God is the judge, and he brings an accusation here against two kinds of religious, religious sinners. One, the insincere worshiper, and two, the hypocritical worshiper. And it's a psalm of rebuke and of judgment to these two sectors of Jewish society. And again, we can apply this in our lives as well. The title of this psalm is A Call to Worship Him in Spirit and in Truth. So in the first here um, section, we're going to see genuine believers. Genuine believers. But these genuine believers, they neglected what it means to have a true genuine relationship. And then the second group, again, is going to be those who um, say they love the Lord, but, um, but they don't. Their actions don't, don't show it. Their words, their life uh, is not a living testimony of that. So here, verses uh, 1 through 2, it says, The mighty one God, the Lord, has spoken and called the earth here God is summoning all humanity. He is the judge, and he's calling the entire earth. From the rising of the sun to its going down out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Here, out of Zion, what comes the law of the Lord? The perfect expression of God's decrees, which for us and here in his word. Verse 3. It says, our God shall come, and he shall not keep silent. He is approaching, right? He can be here any second, any second, the last days we're living in. 
a fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestous all around him. There's going to be this turbulence, a fire, right? See, God came in the flesh and he dwelt among us. That's what his word says, right? And he's coming again and he will not keep silent. He has spoken and he continues to speak. And we see here when he comes again, a fire shall devour before him. Now, when we read about fire in the Bible, we need to know that fire is an expression consistent with judgment, with judgment more, more, most of the time. Why? Because of the holiness of God. The holiness of God is the fire of the Lord. And what does it do? It burns in our lives, right? It burns away all of the moth. It burns away the wood, the hay, and the stubble. And as the Christian goes through the fire, he is refined. He is refined, sanctified, right? The refiner's fire. And God is going to be coming as a devouring fire. Verse 4, he shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So now he, here again, here's where he talks to those professing believers about the covenant that they've made with him, right? And he has made with them this sacred business. And he's going to talk to them about the nature of their worship, the nature of their worship. And now here's a great lesson for us because here we're going to see uh, a rebuke. And how many times um, is it healthy to just be rebuked by the Lord as we read his word, right? That's the refiner's fire as we read his word, as he speaks to us. And as he purifies us and sanctifies us, we see here his rebuke in verse 8. It says here, sorry, verse 7 again. It says, hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So here's the charge. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. Here, he's not going to rebuke them for the sacrifice, but in their attitude of sacrificing. In their attitude, the attitude of the sacrifice, right? So they're doing the sacrifices as it was prescribed in the Levitical time, right? But they're doing it without heart. There's no heart in it. It's an attitude of, ah, I'm doing it for God. I'm just doing it for God, right? He needs my sacrifice, right? The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was there for a purpose. It was there to meet the needs uh, to be a sacrifice in, in, a, in a place, an animal, their, their blood was shed, right? For the forgiveness. God was teaching them that this was a ransom for them. But these believers here, they were doing it, again, without heart. They were doing it without heart. They were bringing sacrifices to God and saying, oh, I have to, I have to tithe because God needs my money. Oh, you know, I, I have to show up early because, you know, um, you know, I want people to see me, right? Or, you know, um, because I told, I told them I'd be there on time and I'd be there early. So like tithing, right, we see a lesson here. The lesson is that God doesn't need our money, right? 
God doesn't need our money. We need God to accept our money as a sweet smelling aroma. It's not mechanical worship, just going through the motions, right? Out of obligation or duty, that is not the walk. That is not But we can come to service with the attitude of gratitude, with the mind of reverence, right? Because we can be here right now and being like, what's the score of the Dodger game, right? Or, um, you know, when's that paycheck going to hit? Or what's for dinner, right? We can be here presently, but we could also be here without even thinking about his statutes, right, of his commands. It's like reading the Bible, right, and, and daydreaming. How many, how many times does that happen? It happens to me all the time. Every time I, you know, not every time, but most of the time, or when I'm trying to get into God's word, the first five, ten minutes are so, are so hard because of just how the enemy attacks my mind and tries to distract me. So what do I do? I set up guardrails, right? I put my phone to the side. You know, I go into a quiet place. You know, I uh, make sure I have my highlighter, the right lighting, a cup, a snack, right? Whatever I need, right? So that I don't just go through the motions, right? I don't want to just go through the motions. And sometimes we do that in our devotional life and our prayer life. And we see that this is what Israel is doing. And God is confronting them of that. He is telling them that here, that I, I don't testify against you um, for your sacrifices, right? Or your burnt offerings, offerings which you are continually before me. Verse 9, I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on, the th- on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. I've created everything. I've created everything. Don't let it be a ritual, right? Don't let it be just some religiosity. Let there be an act of worship with the right attitude. Give with the idea of sacrifice. Out of an expression of your love, giving from my heart overflowing of what he has done for us. It says, if I were hungry, God speaking, if I were hungry, would I not tell you? For the world is mine in all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Do I, do I need your, your bulls? You, you think I'm hungry, right? You think I need this? <laughs> but here God says in verse 15, one of my favorite verses here in this chapter, he says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. How awesome is just that verse right there? We can just chew on that all day and all night. Just recite it back to God in the time of trouble. Another verse like that is Jeremiah 33.3, where it says, Call to me, and I will answer you, and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. As we pour out our heart to him, we can just grasp onto his promises. We can trust him in this relationship that we have with him. You might be saying, you keep on saying relationship. Yes, we talk a lot about relationship in the church. We talk a lot about relationship because if we talk to God and we go to church and, you know, there's no sacrifice or 
You know, there's no heart in our worship. There's no heart in our giving. You're just going through religion. It's religion. There's no relationship. And guess what happens? Life becomes very empty very fast. Because you think, oh, this is my job. Oh, I woke up today. I have to read my Bible. Oh, I got five minutes. Oh, I'm going to pray. Was that, how long was that? 30 seconds? What do I say? Right? relationship versus religion. We have to do it with the purpose of knowing him. He says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. Verse 16 through 17 says, but to the wicked, again here to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Verse 17, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. You're saying you treat my words like trash. You talk the talk, you say you're a Christian, but there's no fruits. It's a bit, you're a bad witness. You're not walking the walk. You talk the talk, but are you walking the walk? Do you care about his statutes? Because here it says you hate instruction. You cast my words behind you. You're doing religion. You don't care. You treat my words without value. It's the warning here. But he says here again, when you, verse 18 when, through 20, when you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. Your mouth is filled with wickedness. Verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have kept silent. So we see here the fruit of those who hate instruction, right? This is a response of those who don't spend diligent time in his word and in prayer and come in fellowship with the believers and be edified and encouraged with one another and serve the holy God. What takes place? You forget. You start to just go through the motions, right? You don't walk the walk no more. And what happens? You start to partake with adulterers. Your words are vulgar, filled with deceit, you insult others. In verse 21, it says, these things you have done and I have kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. He says, you thought that I was altogether likely. You're, you're making a mistake here for my patience and long suffering, right? I'm gonna list the charges behind you. You thought I didn't care, but I'm going to reprove I'm going to reprove, reprove you. He says, you, you thought I was approving of, of that wickedness. You thought that I was approving of you taking part of these things. But don't, don't test my patience, right? Don't mistake the patience of God with his approving. And the wicked, they're going to say these in the last days, right? Oh, you know, God must not care. He's allowing me to do it. But as we end tonight, as we see these last two verses here, um, such an amazing promise. Such an amazing promise. It says, see, now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces. Okay, that's not, that's not a good part, right? <laughs> and there be none to deliver. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you into pieces. 
and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct, all right, I will show the salvation of God. What is he saying here? He's saying, lest I tear you to pieces, right? Lest you repent. Lest you ask for forgiveness. I'm like, wow, God, that's pretty extreme there. I thought Jesus was, you know, the Jesus with the red cheeks and the little lamb on his shoulder and, you know, he's always in just a good mood, right? No, the holiness of God, his justice, his righteousness, right? And we're going to see that there is mercy here. So much mercy, so much grace in this last verse. From ritualism to rebellion, we see that there's solution. And he says, listen carefully, consider this, because before destruction, God always gives us an opportunity for mercy and grace from that deliberation through repentance. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. So the one who has the genuine relationship is going to be the one that praises and glorifies him. And he is going to show, he is going to reveal, and he is going to show his strong hand in our lives. One who offers sacrifice of the heart, one that is of thanksgiving. The remedy is just this beautiful relationship, this conversation that we have with God called repentance. So may we continue to walk in faith, walk by his spirit in faith with a heart of praise, of thanksgiving, and what will take place, he will show us his glory. May we not offer sacrifices not just money it's it's your life a holy living sacrifice right may we offer it sincerely in spirit and truth not of just an empty routine of going through the motions it's getting up early opening up god's word and speaking to him first it's going to bed and prior to going to bed it's sitting there at the foot of the cross again and giving him praise, rejoicing, being glad of the promises that he has laid out before us and the promises that are to come. May we not profess one thing, this the other. May we continue to give God what is rightly due to him, and that is a heart of worship. Father, we thank you.